Hello, my fellow plant people. I am very excited to introduce you to today's happy hour guest, Dr. Anurag Agarwal. He is a professor at Cornell's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and he is also a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He has written over 150 peer-reviewed scientific papers and has received highly cited researcher recognition by the Web of Science. He is also the author of the popular science book, Monarchs and Milkweeds, and has received National Outdoor Book Award for this phenomenal book. Um, so welcome, Anurag. Thank you, great to be here. <laughs> so with this type of episode for our happy hours, we are enjoying a botanical drink while discussing uh, some very unique and interesting botanical topics. Would you like to talk a little bit about what we're enjoying today? Cold green tea. <laughs> uh, very refreshing. Mm -hmm. Little peppy. Yes. <laughs> so do you, um, is green tea your favorite type of tea? A little story about it or uh, I would say it's my favorite kind of tea you know I'm a like many Americans I enjoy a little caffeine every day <laughs> uh, but I try not to have too much coffee and so uh, green tea is my you know number two if you will <laughs> um, I like green tea in part because it has you know all three of the um, the alkaloids the it has a little bit of caffeine it has a little bit of the stuff the chocolate has the what is it, theobromide, and then also the one that's specific to tea. And so, um, you know, you get a little bit of the pep, a little bit of the smooth, a little bit of the uh, excitement. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's a great tea. And I think a very common misconception is that green tea is uncaffeinated. Oh. Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of people and they're like, oh yeah, I don't I drink green tea because it's uncaffeinated. But I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it has a little, a little caffeine in there. Yeah. Maybe half as much as black tea and mm -hmm. a quarter as much as coffee mm -hmm. by volume or I don't know, something like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> definitely espresso is the most caffeinated, um, <laughs> but it's, it's very interesting. And um, do you know anything about how plants can become caffeinated as a you know, chemical ecologist? Or? It's pretty interesting. I don't know. I mean, well, there's something known about how they become caffeinated. They evolve biosynthetic genes, but... Um, Maybe the most interesting thing to say is that um, a lot of plants in different families have uh, caffeine or very, very similar structures. So cacao, chocolate, tea, um, coffee, citrus. They're citrus? All, yep. In fact, wow. there's some caffeine in the nectar of citrus. Oh. And people have wondered about whether um, pollinators become addicted or a little more alert or a little better pollinators because of the caffeine in um, citrus nectar. Oh, that's um, so interesting. I never knew about that one. Yeah. Wow. So if somebody wants to get a, a little micro dose almost of caffeine, should they have a an orange or a clementine? You know, I don't know if they're in the fruits. I, mm. and probably, I think they're maybe most expressed in the nectar. Oh. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but which would be interesting in and of itself, right? Like, oh, why are you putting it in the nectar? And yeah. so that's why there's been some pollination work associated with it, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, that's all great. And we talked a little bit already about some insects, um, and obviously this is one of your passions. Um, so in the broad realm of botany and plant science, uh, how do you classify yourself as a scientist? 
I guess I, I classify myself as an evolutionary ecologist. <laughs> so I study the interactions between species, that's ecology, and often um, kind of how they got there, that would be the evolutionary part, uh, and how those interactions play out over time. Awesome. And then, so you do a lot of work with monarchs, um, based off of your book. Uh, so do you consider and align yourself more with the plant folk or more with the insect folk? It's a good question. I've been thinking about that, well, all of my professional career, in part because I don't think I ever had an entomology class. <laughs> um, and I was trying to remember if I ever had a, a you know, botany class. And I did take plant ecology as an undergraduate. But um, well, I was about to say I'm relatively poor in my botanical and entomological skills, but maybe that's not quite fair to myself. But I'd say I'm mostly self-taught with regard to botany and entomology. I was really kind of trained in ecology mm -hmm. and evolutionary biology, but um, I love them both. Um, I think I might be a little bit more of a plant person. Uh. Um, you know, they don't move around, they don't bite me, so, um, <laughs> but they sting me sometimes, I guess. But. Yes. <laughs> um, and you are a very prolific naturalist as well, too. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about how you, your story on how you just got involved and, and found this love for the, the natural world? Sure. Um, I guess no one really knows how it all starts just because we're young, and I guess probably most kids have some kind of bug phase or <laughs> weed phase or whatever. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you know this quote, E.O. Wilson once said, you know, he just never outgrew his bug phase. Um, <laughs> but most of us outgrow it, I suppose. And um, I don't know, my mother is like a real prolific gardener, and I think um, she also didn't want us in the house very much, so we were booted outside and we went camping on vacations and that kind of thing. So I think that was the template mm -hmm. for an interest in plants and the outdoor world. And um, in college, I basically, I stumbled or fumbled into the right class that changed my life. You know, it sort of was a course about natural history and, um, and it really floated my boat. And so I would say, um, I haven't looked back. I've just sort of tried to learn more about plants and bugs and spend more time outside and make sense of the world that way through natural history. And yeah, That's incredible. And um, so a lot of this comes from your where you grew up in Allentown. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. I, I'm also kind of <laughs> from around there. I, um, my family had a cabin house in near Jim Thorpe area. Jim Thorpe. Beautiful in the Pocono Mountains, um, surrounded by forest. And I always uh, accredit the Poconos to being part of the reason why I'm a botanist and mm -hmm. um, really interested in ecology and um, just because it's so beautiful. And over my short 20 years at this point, um, I've seen it change so much. And mm -hmm. um, what kind of things have you seen uh, change, you know, either here or you know where you're from over the years well there's a lot of change and it's not all bad I would say I mm -hmm. mean um, there's I think there's more forest now than there used to be um, in eastern North America so um, that's a positive I guess in the sense of um, you know we live in a central New York as an example where we live is you know is 97% forested historically when, the, when Native Americans were the only people here and with the advent of uh, European colonization, we cut down most of the forest, and um, 
but it's also central New York in particular is, a, is not a particularly great place for agriculture. And so after trying to grow crops intensively for many years, beginning in the 1920s or whatever, a lot of agriculture was abandoned and there's a lot more forest kind of coming back now. Mm -hmm. That's one change, I would say. Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot more pollution and a lot more um, uh, habitat fragmentation uh, associated with development, and that's, um, I would say, negative in my book. But Yes, yeah. and so explain a little bit more what ha habitat fragmentation is. Habitat fragmentation, I guess, you know, as I mentioned, this area where we live was 97% forested, uh, and, you know, I think a bird's eye view would indicate one big forest that was punctuated with ponds or... Um, lakes or streams, but uh, with development we build roads and we build houses and we build um, towns and schools and shopping malls and um, fragmentation is just that. It's chopping up the natural habitat into little pieces that are uh, less connected than they once were. And so um, for organisms, for plants and animals, um, uh, crossing the road isn't necessarily the easiest thing, and so they generate barriers or um, difficulties for organisms to reproduce. If you take monarchs as an example, um, uh, given that they're migratory, they uh, typically fly long distances and they can find the habitats that they want, but they might have to traverse 10, 50, 100 miles without, you know, without fuel sources, and by that I mean flowers, or without um, uh, other things they need due to development or uh, fragmentation. And so um, those can be challenges for, for, for organisms. That's incredible. Yeah, I guess people also have uh, sometimes a misconception on animals that have wings and the ability to fly and not thinking that these things cause issues uh, when we're building roads or towns and, and all of that that are necessities for many humans um, and definitely make our lives a lot more functional and better, but how that affects even our flighted friends. Absolutely. I mean, well, I did some estimation. I mean, I think 20 million monarchs die in car accidents every oh year. Um, just, you know, uh, when they're flying to Mexico and they're, if they're, um, it was actually a study that was, initially done by a University of Illinois undergraduate that basically found dead butterflies uh, along the highway side and basically did some extrapolation, and I did some more extrapolation, but um, mm. yeah, I think that there's sort of all kinds of problems or issues that can. And the other thing, of course, is that uh, an organism like a monarch butterfly that uh, in the fall migrates, you know, let's say 3,000 kilometers, um, it doesn't really do that with active flight. Um, it's not like uh, I mean, that little butterfly doesn't have the energy to actually like flap away to travel 3,000 kilometers. So they do what a lot of birds do, which is um, ride up thermals, like little hot air tubes. We don't see them, but they're little tubes of hot air. And they get in those like birds do. They'll go up, you know, 1,000 feet, and then they'll glide with the wind. Um, orienting south to try to get to Mexico. So they're trying to conserve energy um, at the same time of getting to where they want to go to. And so they are uh, flapping and they do have wings, but they're not, um, yeah, as immune to the environment or the fragmentation or the challenges that, as we might think. Wow, that's incredible. They can almost like coast along and 
how does that mechanics work of how how much energy does it take them for a single flap like how far can they get with one one little flap of their beautiful wings well how far they can get probably only a few centimeters but um, <laughs> you know the calculation that was done by a, a Canadian scientist in the 70s was that um, if a monarch butterfly were to use what he called powered flight meaning you're using using energy and musculature to flap after 11 hours they'd have no energy left mm. and of course every afternoon when they're migrating they can drink nectar and fuel up or whatever but they are not using powered flight for 11 hours and have nothing left mm. so um, you know they're using powered flight every day they then drink some nectar and refuel but by and large for going long distances they're trying to um, take advantage of wind currents Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, so I think we should, we've talked a little <laughs> bit already about how awesome monarchs are, but maybe it would be helpful if we talked a little bit about the, the life cycle of monarchs and their, their migration patterns. Sure. Uh, where should I start? <laughs> so um, we've talked a little bit about how they migrate and they can go so far in a day. Why do they do this? Um, what's driving them? Yeah. So uh, let's see, it's, it's October now. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, sorry. That's okay. Um, it's October when we're recording. <laughs> okay. It's the fall season now, and um, they are uh, in flight migrating to Mexico. And um, the main thing we think that drives migration is the uh, availability of either a resource or protection. For some, from something. Mm -hmm. And monarch butterflies come from a lineage of butterflies that are tropical. And as part of that in their physiology, they don't survive freezing. Mm -hmm. um, so many, many butterflies or other insects or other animals deal with freezing in various ways. They might hibernate. Um, they might uh, freeze solid. They might... Um, and then when they freeze solid, they can, when spring comes, just flap right away once they dethaw? Um, I think so. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess maybe solid isn't as solid as I, said, as I stated. Many insects might secrete salts and sugars mm. that, into their bodies so that they don't freeze as solid. Oh. Um, and they also, um, you're the physiologist, but um, <laughs> they also like have ways to prevent the freezing water from bursting their cells. Um, and I don't know, I'm making this up a little bit, but it's, it's like when they freeze, they let some of the expansion of the frozen water kind of to come out between their cells so that their cells don't burst. Oh, interesting. But monarchs, in any case, don't freeze. <laughs> um, and so as a consequence of not being freezing tolerant, um, they fly south. And it's thought that their origin was tropical. So the other way of thinking about migration is less why they go south, but why do they come north? If they come, mm -hmm. come from a tropical lineage, why is it that they expanded out of the tropics to come to the temperate um, side of North America, U.S. and southern Canada? And the answer to that is less about protection and more about resources. Mm. So... As things heat up in, let's say, April in the tropics, in, Me in, in Mexico, as it's becoming summer, it's still pretty cool and frigid here in the U.S. And milkweeds, their main and only host uh, resource or plant that they mm -hmm. eat, is basically coming out of the ground in May 
flourishing in June and July and really kind of completing its life cycle in August and September. So those milkweeds that flourish in our summer become an available resource for monarchs. And that's the thought to have driven migration, basically come north in the spring and summer, take advantage of all this juicy milkweed, but then when it gets cold, um, migrate back to Mexico because they can't tolerate the freezing. Mm. So I guess with this idea of migration, do you think that they actually have some form of directional sense? They know which way is north and which way is south, or are they just hopping from milkweed to milkweed? All organisms that migrate um, need uh, a map and a compass. Mm. Uh, if you can try to get somewhere, um, you know, the monarchs, they, mig- they overwinter on 12 mountaintops in a, uh, in a place in central Mexico that's the size of New York City. Oh, wow. And what that means is they are congregating, collecting, east of the Rocky Mountains. I mean, millions of square miles east of the Rockies all the way to Maine, basically. All of those hundreds of millions of butterflies filter down to these 12 mountaintops in a place the size of New York City. So to get there, they need a map and a compass. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say uh, it's it's pretty clear what their compass is. Um, and scientists are still working on their map. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, they use, um, they use the sun to, ne- uh, to migrate and to find those overwinter grounds mm-hmm. um, in something called a time-compensated sun compass. So uh, in September or October when they're migrating, the sun in the northern hemisphere is, you know, at midday is kind of if you were to walk towards the sun, you'd be walking south. So mm-hmm. that's the good news. But the problem is, is at 9 in the morning, it's not facing south, and at 4 in the afternoon, it's not facing south. Mm-hmm. Um, so they use their internal clocks. All animals have a circadian rhythm, mm-hmm. 24-hour clock. They use their internal clock to adjust how they use the sun um, to get south. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's incredible that they know so much. Now, is this passed down from generation to generation like is that that um, uh, ability to when it's time to fly north or when it's time to fly south um, how, how do they know it's genetically ingrained there's no learning or teaching involved um, so the monarchs have four generations a year and only one of them migrates south so it's going to a place it's never seen before and in fact the last three generations Uh, It's parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents haven't really gone there or seen that either. So it's pretty pretty ingrained and it's pretty unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) They're so fascinating. And so we've talked a little bit about how the monarchs have had um, multiple generations. They they live for different lengths of times. Is is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that migratory generation uh, lives for eight months. Mm. It's pretty crazy. So... um, those that are migrating now uh, in the fall, um, you know, were caterpillars, let's say, in August. Um, and they'll make it to uh, the overwintering grounds in Mexico by around Thanksgiving. They'll then wait there three to four months um, in trees, and then they'll fly back north over the border. They don't recognize political boundaries, but they will <laughs> fly over the border into Texas. Most of the first generation 
um, is centered on Texas and the Gulf states. And so, um, yeah, they'll then lay eggs and die uh, in March uh, in Texas. And so they will have lived, you know, late July or early August all the way through March. But the next three generations will live only about one month each. Wow. Um, and they're doing something very different. They're, you know, flying north, laying eggs. The caterpillars are turning into butterflies. They're mating right away. They're laying eggs. They're moving north. And they do this very different thing, yeah, for three generations. Wow, that's, they're so, so fascinating. And as someone who doesn't know too much about insects, they're so beautiful and so distinct. And I feel like it's probably one of the only butterflies I could maybe point out correctly. Um, but hey, but I have a question for you. Isn't this yeah. a botany podcast? It is. It is. <laughs> so we will switch more into the, the milkweed sections um, <laughs> as well, too. So with that, monarchs are... Uh, they are specialists, correct? They, so they only feed on the milkweeds. Why, why do they do that? That's a good question. Um, I would say um, there's sort of a, a general answer and a specific answer, and uh, I'll try to weasel my way out of both of those. No, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you. The, the general notion first is that among insects that eat plants, um, the lion's share of them, or most of them, are specialists. So let's say there's a million species of herbivorous insects. Uh, and just for your listeners, I'll point out that there's um, 10,000 species of birds on the planet and maybe 400,000 species of plants. But there's a million, let's say, at least species of herbivorous insects um, that, that make their living by eating plants. Um, most of them restrict their diets to plants in one family, uh, one botanical family. And so in a general sense, most of the caterpillars, herbivorous insects, agricultural pests, however you think about them, the, the insects out there that are eating plants, most of them are fairly specialized. Mm. And scientists have for a long time wondered why and have thought that probably there are so many of them in part because they eat their diets are relatively narrow. If their diets were super broad, they'd kind of be clamoring for the same stuff. Um, and the general notion uh, for why they specialize is that um, jack of all trades is master of none. Mm -hmm. That, uh, in this case, the trades are the plants. So if you're wanting to exploit and eat plants, um, if you're trying to eat many different kinds of plants, you can't eat any one of them very well. The flavors, the chemical compound, the toxins that are in, you know, broccoli versus a chili pepper versus a milkweed versus a pine tree are really different. And so it might require specialization to be able to conquer or to do well at feeding on and exploiting one of those plants. And if you're going to do really well at one of them, you might have to give up your ability to do well in others. What is this doing well? Um, is that because that's they know what it is, they know it's cor like the correct food to eat, or is it more beneficial in, in other ways to be uh, a specialist in the terms of predation? or All of the above. So I would say if you're a specialist 
and you're looking for a, pl a particular plant that you know is nutritious for you, you know you, that the organism has evolved by natural selection to perform well on, um, then finding it becomes a little bit easier. You can block out all the noise, the noise being the smells or colors or shapes of every other plant, and I'm just looking for a milkweed or whatever I'm looking for. It might be a good place to find a mate. Um, and that plant um, might be a little bit poisonous or might be challenging to consume for many other species, but you have the physiological machinery to perform well, um, grow, uh, grow the insect body uh, rapidly on the, those materials. So I think it's all of the above, that there are many benefits of specialization. Um, and one of the things that we think ensues, and I don't, I guess it's a little hard to know where things started, but if an insect is a specialist, um, then the plant, uh, you know, the plants don't want to be eaten, apparently. Um, <laughs> what? Even, <laughs> That's crazy. Even our broccoli. Um, and so they, you know, in response are evolving, and they're re evolving ways to defend themselves, to be eaten less. And so that often you know, we believe results in something that has been analogized to an arms race. Um, the uh, plant erects some barriers to feeding, um, but the insect, in this case, let's say the monarchs or whatever the insect is, the tomato hornworm or the, um, they, uh, there's then natural selection on the insect to adapt, to be able to overcome that barrier. And if they're so specialized that they're not gonna switch foods, that can kind of go back and forth Escalating until you have a really, you know, quite a fortified, defended, poisonous plant, <laughs> and a remarkably able um, insect herbivore that can deactivate or tolerate or uh, undo those defenses. So, with the milkweeds, they are toxic to many different animals and other insects. Um, does that mean that? Um, People who want to maybe get more involved and, and plant milkweeds, should they keep their pets away from them? Or does planting milkweed um, help the, if they want to help out the monarch butterflies? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a very, uh, I, I advocate planting native milkweeds. Um, that's not always the easiest thing. I'd say in the Northeast, um, common milkweed, Asclepius syriaca, um, is super abundant, it grows really well, it's weedy. Um, and there are other native milkweeds in our region, the butterfly weed, Asclepius tuberosa, or the swamp milkweed, Asclepius incarnata. Uh, but in some other regions, even though there are abundant milkweed species, they're not as easy to cultivate. So there are 140 milkweed species uh, in North America, great diversity. Um, and I, and I always advocate planting native uh, milkweeds if you can. Um, and just to, to clarify, I think that there's um, a common mix, misconception with the name milkweed. People often think that it's a, a weed or a pest. Um, so we talked a little bit about how there's different varieties and um, how they're native to different parts. So what would you suggest to people who want to find um, their, how to find the native milkweeds uh, to plant in that area? There are a lot of resources on the on the web. You know, if you just um, there are uh, milk native milkweed finders, meaning um, websites where you can put in your state or your zip code 
find the local species, and often even find sources, nurseries, or whatever that are selling them. Yeah, there's a little bit of controversy about the tropical milkweed, um, Asclepias curasavica. Uh, it's not quite native in the U.S. It's probably native to um, central Mexico and further south, uh, but it. Uh, it grows very well and abundantly. It's become feral in you know, Texas to uh, Florida to California. And um, I, 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 in general, discourage people from planting that one. Okay. And then um, there's been often uh, concerns um, with my background in species invasion uh, with contaminated seed sources. Um, yes. Do you have any suggestion on how to avoid um, sources that have potentially contaminated seeds or that if you're trying to find milkweed seeds to plant? I would say in terms of um, if you're finding seeds, um, I... In general, I, myself, I don't worry so much about contamination. Um, the seed is a relatively small thing. The plant is going to grow into this big thing. Um, it would, in, it's in general, I think, best practice to plant seeds that have been sourced somewhat locally because plants adapt to their local environment. So, um, you know, here in Ithaca, there's a native plant nursery, and I believe that they collect local milkweeds, germinate them, and grow them, and so... Um, if they're grown without pesticides, even better. Um, a recent study has shown that milkweeds purchased at uh, the various big box stores that are sold as pesticide-free have tons of pesticide residues, and that's oh a, a peer-reviewed publication. So uh, certainly um, that's something that people are uh, getting that they don't know that they're getting. And so I, I'm hoping that that article, which I had nothing to do with, will stimulate a little better policing and better practices on the part of uh, the more commercial growers. And so with that, uh, we've seen a lot of rise in this idea of pollinator gardens um, for a, an abundance of different pollinators. Um, have you seen that as we increase our work on pollinator gardens and more people are willing and excited to plant them, have you seen that it's been helpful in any ways? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, I probably don't have the most popular view about uh, pollinator gardens, uh, but I think that they are really helpful. Um, and perhaps the main way in which they're helpful is um, in educating uh, ourselves and others, um, you know, and by encouraging us to kind of kill our lawns and have less uh, pristine areas. So, you know, many people, I did this 15 years ago, uh, if you have a part of your yard that's either not that accessible or where you don't want to recreate or whatever, letting it go feral and, you know, yes, throwing some milkweed seeds in there or whatever, I think is very positive on many fronts. People walk by, they might notice the pollinators, um, you're not doing as much mowing, you're certainly not going to be putting fertilizers or insecticides in there. Um, I think, it, to me, anyways, it's a little less clear that that's... Um, helping to solve the um, habitat loss problem or the environmental problem or the habitat um, fragmentation problem, but I know others will dis would disagree with me, so um, uh, yeah, that's all I'll say, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so with milkweeds, uh I do want to emphasize that they're not just beneficial to just monarchs. Uh, what are the other species that you know of that um, thrive off of monarch um, populations? 
Yeah, I mean, milkweeds, it's interesting. The, um, there's just a ton of things that come to the flowers and use the nectar. Uh, the nectar is super sweet. Native Americans collected the nectar, used it as a sugar source, um, and all kinds of uh, butterflies and bees and uh, native bees and other things will come utilize the plant. And um, then, you know, the, the, the leaves and the roots and the, um, and the seeds are eaten by a group of other really interesting native insects. Uh, it's about 12 species, um, and they share some things in common. You know, they're, many of them are red and black or orange and white and black, like the monarch. Um, they're getting poisons from the plant, just as the monarch is. And they form a really rich and interesting community. Um, so, yeah, I think, so, you know, I, I get an email once a month from somebody that asks about how they can get rid of the other insects on their milkweed because they want to make space for monarchs. And <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I understand the sentiment, people want to help. But on the other hand, I sort of try to make the argument that all of those insects have an uh, uh, important place in the ecosystem and a right to be there and they're native and doing interesting things and that... Um, I encourage people to leave them. <laughs> <laughs> Are they actually taking up space for them that the monarchs can't use, or do they all kind of share the milkweed? Uh, I'd say there's a, there's a little bit of sharing and some antagonism. You know um, <laughs> that um, this is an area that my lab has studied a fair bit. You know, if you have twelve species that utilize the milkweeds, um, how do they interact? Do they leave each other alone? Um, and there's some really interesting examples uh, of interactions. Um, I had a postdoc, Jared Ali, and he uh, we did a study together that he wanted to publish under the title "Aphids Suck and Monarchs Rule." Um, <laughs> and the editor of the journal uh, asked us to change the title, which we were disappointed about. But um, it had to do with aphids, which um, when they colonize a milkweed plant, as they often do, um, and they're suckers, they they suck the phloem or the um, the sugar sap in the plant. Um, so <laughs> oh, the aphids suck. <laughs> exactly. But when they suck, when they drink the phloem, um, they tend to make the plant a little better food for monarchs. Oh. Um, and so um, I think they, be, they cause a physiological sink. They draw resources, and monarchs grow a little bit faster. And, you know, I'm sure that that's only the case at very low densities of aphids, as aphids grow in densities and they cover the plant, that does probably make things more difficult for monarchs. If monarchs arrive for us and they feed on the plants, aphid populations don't do as well. Um, hence the title, Aphids Suck and Monarchs Rule. Um, <laughs> so the feeding by the monarchs is suppressive or has a negative effect on the aphids. And so uh, there are all kinds of those interactions between the insects that, um, that share milkweeds, or that share any host plant, really. Um, and yeah. So we talked a little bit about, you know, some of these topics that your lab has been exploring over the past years. Um, would you like to tell us uh, one of your favorite or most exciting research stories? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> one of the other uh, lepidopterans, it's a moth, it's not a butterfly, that feeds on milkweed. Um, hoping some of your our listeners here will have seen it. It's called uh, the milkweed tussock moth. Um, and it's a caterpillar that is uh, black, orange, and white. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the remarkable things is the monarch, the adult monarch butterfly, is also black, orange, and white. And they're kind of on the plant around the same time. There'll be monarchs fluttering around, and there'll be these black, orange, and white caterpillars. 
so we started studying them, and quite interestingly, they don't put the milkweed poisons in their bodies mm. the way the monarchs do. So they are around at the same time. They look like the monarch, but they're not poisonous. They're not adver- they're they're not advertising actual toxicity. Um, so we think they're cheaters on the system that they have evolved. <laughs> to look like the monarch, uh, but they don't actually go through the motions of uh, being poisonous the way the butterfly is. So is that a mimicry? It's mimicry, exactly. And, um, you know, in our classes, we uh, we classify mimicry as Mullerian or Batesian after two um, ancient naturalists. And Mullerian mimics are those species that look similar and they are mutually toxic. That's how I remember Mularia. They both are toxic. So it kind of is reinforcing. They look similar and they're both poisonous. They both might teach inadvertently predators to avoid those colors. Mm. But uh, Bates, uh, after who, after which uh, Batesian mimicry is named, is a situation where one organism looks like the other, but it's, uh, it's mimicry in the worst sense, where you're not actually poisonous uh, the, mim- the mimic is, isn't mutually toxic, it is uh, not toxic, but it uh, looks the part. It uh, reminds me of the office quote, uh, identity theft is not a joke. Exactly. <laughs> um, that, that's awesome. Well, uh, what advice would you give to yourself either as an undergrad or a grad student, um, and how can you help people really kick off their, their research and, and start and drive for plant-insect interactions? Is this advice for you or just... To... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love some, too. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I um, this is probably more personal than you want, but... Um, <laughs> I'm not the kind of person that looks back uh, very much, and um, that has its um, positive side and its negative side. So I'd say I don't really have regrets or whatever, but maybe you didn't ask about that. You asked about advice. I would say following one's passions, um, you know, is really important because I think uh, we're all busy, tired people, and um, the things that give us energy um, typically are the things that... um, uh, will keep us going. And so if, if one is passionate about butterflies or one is passionate, passionate about science communication or whatever it is, feed it because um, it's where we get, um, I think, uh, the things that keep us up at night because we're excited about them, I think, are what uh, provide fulfillment and um, allow us to make a difference in a way. Uh, as an academic or as a scientist, I would say the flip side is placing your passions, uh, the advice I'd give is place your passions within the context of, um, you know, what the scientific community wants or needs. Or So if there's a theory that's out there that's untested and you're passionate about a particular plant and you can test that theory with that, wonderful. Um, or if you're, you know, so I'd say channeling one's passions to what um, the scientific community, you know, is after or looking for is, uh, I suppose, the way to go or a way to go anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Passion is always important for whatever you do. Um, and then I'm sure you have seen a lot of change in your years of being an academic and a naturalist. Uh, which direction would you hope to see plant research go in the future? Well I think one direction that's already being realized some 
is um, taking advantage of um, technological innovations over the last, let's say, 20 years to address really kind of fundamental or classic questions um, in really interesting different organisms. And so maybe that sounded like a lot of vague terminology, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, advances in plant ecology and plant biology in the last, let's say, 30 years have largely come from studying a few species. Some of them are the lab rats of the botanical world, <laughs> the mouse ear cress, Arabidopsis thaliana, or particular agricultural crops, which we study both because we want to improve them, but because they've become models to just understand plant biology. Tomato is a classic where it's being studied from all different directions. Um, but as you all know, you know, there's 350,000 other plant species out there that have really interesting biology. And because of innovations in, um, in all kinds of things, in isotopic analyses, in chemistry, in genetics, um, in understanding the, all the evolutionary relationships among plants, we can now tackle um, really interesting questions in plants outside of that kind of chosen 10 species. And so, as an example, in the milkweed world with these 140 species, we're, you know, working on understanding the genetic basis of producing very specific kinds of compounds. Uh, those compounds are super interesting to us as kind of nerdy chemical ecologists <laughs> interested in monarch milkweed coevolution, but they're also interesting to uh, health scientists because the chemicals in, in milkweeds have been used medicinally for thousands of years, and we know that some of them have really special properties uh, that can be important in treating congestive heart failure, treating cancer. So by understanding the genetic basis of some of those, we can learn something both about the natural world and how evolution proceeds and maybe make some strides towards um, improving you know, human health at the same time. So I think we're at a new frontier. Uh, some people call it non-model omics. And it's, I mean, what a terrible uh, uh, word. I, but the non-model means we're, we're branching out beyond those 10 species that were studied historically. And the omics part is applying all the technological frontiers to um, asking really interesting and fundamental questions. Wonderful. Thanks so much. That's definitely some great advice and hoping to see where this all goes. It's all so exciting. We still have I always emphasize we have so much to learn, um, especially in the world of plant knowledge. It's it's not a dead field. It's growing every day. Absolutely. Um, it's wonderful. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you have going on, some very exciting stuff. Research-wise or? Research um, about um, monarchs and milkweeds. What are you doing right now? Well, I'd say the thing that keeps me up at night um, is... Um, right now, we're trying, there's, I'll tell you about two little projects. Uh, they're not so little. Um, <laughs> one is among those 12 species of insects that make their living by eating milkweeds, we're trying to understand all the ways in which they're similar and all the ways in which they're different. And the motivation is to try to understand where biodiversity comes from. I mentioned earlier there's several hundred thousand species of plants, there's a million species of herbivorous insects, where does it come from and why? And one approach to understanding that 
is to take a group of species that share the same resource, in this case they all eat milkweeds, and to ask how is it that they've colonized and adapted and make their living. And in many ways, it's really the same. Some of them have the same individual genetic mutations that allow them to tolerate and exploit the milkweed, even though they haven't shared an ancestor in 300 million years. You know, a, a caterpillar and a beetle and a fly and a grasshopper, they all share the same genetic mutations. So that tells us that there's some rules that have guided the evolution of life if you're going to exploit the milkweed plant. Is that under the question of coevolution or a little different? It is under the, I mean, it's coevolution in the sense that it's multiple species of bugs, but, and they're attacking one plant. Um, I would say in evolutionary terms, it's convergent evolution. Convergent evolution. In the sense that you have distantly related species, and they've all found what seems to be the same solution. Um, now, if there was one rule, then you wouldn't expect biodiversity. In other words, we have biodiversity because things are different. And so we're trying to partition that variation. What is the same that allows them, what are the rules of biology that allow species to colonize and do well on one plant? But then why have they done things also slightly differently? And um, how has that generated having those 12 species or having the, you know, the probably, I'm guessing, 500 species of insects worldwide that feed on plants like milkweeds. Um, so I'd say that's one thing that I'm working on and that um, I think I might be close. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then one of the other things relates to something I said earlier, which is um, the details of the toxins that milkweeds make and how they're chemically and structurally a little bit different, how that might result in poisoning of the monarch versus the monarch taking advantage of it, um, and sort of uh, all the nitty-gritty of how that happens. And it's especially challenging for me because I basically was trained without any knowledge of genetics or chemistry. In fact, I, as an undergraduate, I um, purposefully chose a major where I didn't have to take organic chemistry. And it's, it's bitten <laughs> me in the ass because now I'm doing all this <laughs> genetics and chemistry work. Uh, but fortunately, I have a lab full of interesting and smart people, so they, they help. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, well, thank you so much, Anurag, uh, for all of your time today um, and joining us. Um, for those of you who want to learn more about monarchs and how they relate to the world around them, check out Anurag's book, Monarchs and Milkweed, which I will link down below in the show notes. Uh, also, feel free to become a plant person um, by joining us on Instagram at the Happy Botanist Podcast. Um, again, that's on Instagram for the Happy Botanist Podcast is our username. Thanks for Cold Brew for our lovely song intro. Check him out. Also, links in the show notes. And thanks to Gabby Moffitt, the, the artist behind our lovely cover. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>